We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Woi Wurrung Nation, traditional custodians of the lands of which we record this podcast. We recognise the care and cultivation of country by First Peoples and pay respects to Elders past and present. That respect is extended to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Diggers Podcast, the podcast for subversive gardeners looking to explore the unconventional and potentially controversial concepts that push the boundaries of traditional gardening. Join us as we challenge the status quo and discover new ways to grow and cultivate the world around us. Welcome to the Diggers podcast series, where we discuss the hot horticultural topic, eucalypts, friend and foe. The iconic tree has been a topic of conversation and debate for many years, and over the course of this series, we'll be talking to people from all sides of the argument, plus exploring more widely trees in our urban and wild areas. Hello to you. My name is Chloe Foster, horticulturalist, teacher and broadcaster from Melbourne, Australia, hosting on behalf of the Diggers Club and Foundation. Diggers is a gardening club and community specialising in the conservation and preservation of a wide range of heirloom vegetables and rare fruits and plants. Today, I'm chatting with Dr Greg Moore, arborist, academic and lecturer at the University of Melbourne's Burnley Horticulture Campus. Greg is highly respected in the horticulture industry and has sat on the board of Greening Australia and Sustainable Gardening Australia. He's also a member of the National Trust of Victoria's Significant Trees Register Committee. He's developed Australian standards for pruning and amenity trees and has spoken at numerous conferences across the globe. I'm very pleased to welcome Greg to this podcast. Thank you, Chloe. You're very welcome. Let me start off. You're an arborist. I have to ask you, what is your favourite tree? The great question. I've been asked it before. And my answer varies because it depends on the context. Okay. So sometimes I'm madly in love with one particular species, maybe one that I'm doing some research on. Um, but in general, it's very hard for me to go past river red gums. They're great, great trees. I'm very fond of them. And I'm also very fond of messmate stringy bark, Eucalyptus obliqua. And the reason I'm fond of that one is I've done research on it basically since the 70s. Mm. So for a long, long time. It's a wonderfully resilient, uh, tough Australian customer, and so that appeals to me. But I also have some uh, very fond uh, feelings towards, say, golden elms, you know, the one on uh, the corner of Punt Road. So a particular specimen yeah, of a golden elm. that particular elm. specimen, yeah. yeah. I think and, I know what you're talking about. And, it's, and doesn't everyone love the southern conifers, the aracarias and, and the agathas? Yes, species? that is my favourite genus of trees. I can't pick a species, but it's my favourite yeah. genus. So it, it depends where I am and what I'm looking at at the time. I, do, I don't have real favourites, but I do have many favourites that I'm uh, sort of quite passionate about and very interested in. And sometimes you do need to categorise it down, <laughs> yes. so depending on your mood or maybe favourite conifer species. Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the way they're responding too to the environment, sometimes a species, a specimen – or a genus will come to your mind because of what's happening around you, you know. So if you've had fires and floods, you'd be thinking of river red gums 
that sort of thing. Uh, you might be thinking of messmates flinging back after fires, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and they really come at you quite strongly. Uh, I do have an interest in some birds as well. So, you know, if you're thinking of yellow-tailed black cockatoos, which I do think I about. I love them. Yes, I yes. do think about. Well, hakeas and some of the acacias and so on come to mind very quickly as yeah. well. And the yellow-tailed black cockies have a strong association with a lot of our native gum trees as well. Uh, they have a very strong association. And other trees. Lots of our plants, yes. Yeah. They're, they're, I, I find them a great bird. They're, of course, they're much bigger than people think. Some of the, the big ones get to about 65 centimetres. Wow. So that, that's a big bird. It and is. so you, you take notice of them, particularly when they've got a beak that can take your finger off it <laughs> in a blink. <laughs> yeah. Before we go down a bird track, yes. let's let's stick to eucalypts today. We've obviously this series is called Eucalypts Friend and Foe. Yes. It's a pretty big topic and you're probably one of the most qualified people to talk to about it. Let's give people a, a really good overview of the eucalypts as a floral group. Yes. So the, the eucalypts the way I think about them is that they're virtually a, a complete flora. So that in other parts of the world uh, there might be eight or ten different species that occupy the sorts of uh, range of niches that eucalypts currently occupy. And we wouldn't think anything about that. You'd be thinking, oh, yes, they in Europe or in uh, uh, North America, yes, those species occur here and these ones are a bit up in the mountains. But eucalypts along the coastal fringe of Australia are very widespread and they are a very, very diverse group, you know, well over 700 species. Mm. Um, and I often say to people, well, if you want a eucalypt, just tell us what you want and there'll be one to fit your oh, need. Amen. Yes. Short ones, tall ones, broad ones, narrow ones, <laughs> um, brilliant flower ones, inconspicuous flowers, ones that attract certain, you know, you, you name oh, it, there's a eucalypt. Yeah, absolutely. And so I tend to think of them at the subgeneric level. So the listeners would know that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the Carimbia were all called eucalyptus mm. and then they were separated off. Uh, what the listeners may not know is that there are other subgenera within the eucalyptus group. That uh, haven't been split off. That yet. haven't been split off. Uh, and the proposals have been around for 50 years that they could be split off. Mm. And so um, groups like Monocalyptus, Symphiomyrtus, Galbaea, uh, Blakella, for example, are ones that come to mind. Idiogenes is another one. And there are other groups as well. And these are often quite different from each other. They're as different from each other as Angophoras are mm. to the rest of the eucalypts. So I think you'd find that many people would be going, oh, no, don't don't separate those subgenera. There's always a hoo-ha whenever a plant name changes yeah, anyway. And, and people think it would make life more complicated. But in fact, if you look at these subgroups, these subgenera, they have characteristics that relate to the horticulture and gardening aspects of them as much as the uh, ecological aspects that would make life much simpler. So, for example, you would know that in the eastern and southeastern Australia, the moister regions, even in Western Australia, monocalyptus do very well. When conditions become tougher, corymbia starts to come into it. Mm. Symphiomyrtus can do well. Uh, there are certain species that do better on slightly alkaline soils, whereas most of the eucalypts do well on uh, slightly acidic soils. So you've got all of these sorts of characteristics mm. that are embodied not in the genus characteristics, but in the subgenera groups. And you would know, and many of the listeners would know also, that there are considerable variations <laughs> in the 
leaf form, the bark types, and of course the flowers. Mm. So if you look at eucalypts as a major component, not just at a species or genus level, but at a, a sort of floral community level, I think that's a better way to think of them. Absolutely. They're, su- they're, they're, just, they're just such a big group. And they, because they're, they're all still quite lumped together, they haven't been split yet. And I think it's going to happen. Oh, yes. It'll, it, it's going to happen. As a whole, the group gets a really bad rap, particularly in urban areas. They're often known as branch droppers. Yes. They, they fill up roots and they crack yes. pipes and it, well, there was probably a crack in the pipe to begin with. Yes. So, so the, the, the urban myths surrounding eucalypts are really most unfortunate because mm. uh, people are easily influenced and there is a lack of data. So, for example, many people think that eucalypts are prone to shedding branches. Many don't. Mm. And many people find that they, they think they've got sort of roots that go on search and destroy missions for <laughs> paths and, and pipes. Yeah. They don't do that either. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is this, that when you're looking at the genus, and we'll, we'll talk about it as a genus at the moment, eucalyptus, yeah. there's been very little breeding and selection of particular species or populations or individuals within those species mm. for urban purposes. Whereas most of the exotic trees that people uh, are familiar with and often love, and sometimes rightly so, mm. uh, they've been bred and selected for sometimes millennia yeah. and sometimes for uh, hundreds of years. So if you think of something like the elm tree, we know it's been bred and selected for at least 500 years and probably a thousand years for use in towns and cities around the world. It performs very well in many places, and it's performed well, of course, in places like Melbourne and Mm. and various uh, parts of Australia. But eucalypt, if you look at eucalypt and you look up the number of papers that have researched them and and with a purpose to selecting them and getting the best ones for urban use, you can count them on the fingers of a hand. Yeah, it's really little. I mean, it probably can be said for Australian plants horticulturally anyway. It's that industry of research into Australian plants for horticultural use is such a young industry in comparison to what's been done in Europe and America for hundreds of hundreds of years. That's absolutely right. But I can give you some examples. Consider spotted gum. And I'm guessing that some of the listeners to this podcast would already be rolling their eyes (laughs) and others will be saying, yes, great tree. Uh, and you can, you can, this applies to the lemon scented gum, uh, the close relatives. They're both carimbias. And spotted gum has been very widely planted, and we've done research on it. And we know, for example, that it has many of the characteristics in its roots that you want in an urban tree. Mm. So it's comparable in its performance and the way it behaves to things like elms or plane trees or oaks in other parts yeah. of the world. So that's a good bit of information to have. Now, People are a little bit worried about root systems, but they're more worried about what might happen above ground. <laughs> and what we found there is that there are, if you go out into the, the, the natural populations of Carimbia maculata or spotted gum, there are some that are prone to shedding. But you get into other groups where there's virtually no shedding. Really? And there is a particular group of spotted gum that grows in Victoria in the Mottle Range, and it's called... Carimbia maculata henrii, or some people just call it Carimbia henrii. I've been to that population. Yes. And it's quite different. Yeah. Doesn't grow, grow quite so tall, a little bit more spreading, virtually no incidences of co-dominant stems, which are likely to spit, yeah. split, 
has a slightly denser foliage. So if you think about it, if you were to use that population as an urban street tree, many of the problems that people are worried about could be avoided. Mm. Now, that's just one, one example. And we know that the same thing happens in, in Lophostomans, which are the you know, brush boxes. Uh, it can also happen in Tristaniopsis because work has been done in those. Mm. And we also know the same thing happens with yellow gum. So if you were to breed and select within the eucalypts, you could come up with some what I would call absolutely wonderful urban trees and some of the species that would be available to you could surprise. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, Carimbia maculata is the main root stock that's used on most grafted Carimbias. Yes. So a lot of the, the dwarf flowering gums. Yes. I was in the city just this week and there's a – patch of Carimbia citriodora planted along Flinders Street next to the exposed rail yards. Yes. And they, well, they look like it. They've been grafted onto Carimbia maculatus. Yes. You can certainly graft eucalypts. Mm. So there, again, there are some urban myths. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. You can't bear root eucalypts. Well, you can. Really? Uh, yes, absolutely. You've got to know what you're doing and you've got to pick the species. But I can remember uh, when we were doing revegetation work with Greening Australia uh, we get a, uh, a box of uh, eucalypts, all bare-rooted in plastic bags, weigh virtually nothing, really? and away you'd go. And uh, the other myth is that you can't bud or graft them. Uh, grafting is diff- difficult in many species, but budding is certainly possible. For people that don't know what budding is, can you give me but, an explanation? But budding is, is a bit like grafting, but instead of taking a long piece of um, cyan, would we call it, to graft onto the rootstock, you only take a, a bud, a single bud. There are a couple of different methods of budding, mm. which I won't go into on, on in this podcast. <laughs> and and some, are, some of these uh, forms of budding are more successful than others. Yeah. You simply take a bud, you insert it into the bark of the eucalypt, and that little bud will take off. Now, that allows you to get a really good specimen. So if you see a really great specimen and you can graft it onto one of these rootstocks, you get all the benefits of the grafted nursery industry Mm. coming on site. And the nursery industry are interested in doing this, but we are very slow in Australia to take it up. What needs to be done? What sort of research needs to be done to try to speed along the process? So, so what we need to do is we, we, we want to look at species and identify them as being very good for urban use. There's, there's so many of them, but I'll, I'll use yellow gum as an example because I've done work on it fairly recently. And we know that yellow gum is a widely planted uh, street tree. Uh, in many parts of Australia. It, it's indigenous to parts of South Australia and parts of Victoria, ma- mainly across the north. It's really a, a really tough and, and resilient tree in many, many ways. And some of your the listeners to this bo- her podcast will be going, oh, I've seen a, a, a yellow box and the proper name is uh, Eucalyptus leucoxylon. And mm. I've seen one of those and it looked terrible. And others will be going, I've seen one and it was fantastic. And that's because They've virtually all been seedling grown. Yeah, they are. And so there's this great variability. Absolutely. But if you could pick a good one and you were to take a a cutting from it and select a bud from it and put it onto the rootstock, you're going to get a good tree. And we know where some of those really good trees are. So you could plant that in the appropriate environments. And the other thing about this, of course, is that if you do think about climate change, which we are, uh, and eucalypts are going to be absolutely crucial to Australia and our urban tree populations under climate change, within a a species, you might find that some 
are more resilient to climate change than others. So why not get those ones going? Start to produce those. And if there are good forms within them, then you could bud those as well. And budding makes things profitable for the nursery industry because they know they've got good stock. And they also allows us to produce a much better quality plant. So those that are planting out in the in the world, so to speak, will know that they're going to get a, a pretty good outcome if they do things right. Mm. In our urban areas, there's sort of two well, there's two components, a lot of different components, but one of them is our urban street trees, but then uh, our trees for our gardens in yes. urban areas. So smaller blocks, you might not want to put in a 50-metre tree no, in your backyard. No, you, you probably don't. Um, what are some of the differences in selection between a, a street tree and a tree suited for a small area? Yeah. So, look, when, when you're looking at the street trees and the trees for a, a smaller area, firstly, let me say we've got to have both. If you look at the climate change scenarios for particularly south, southern and southeastern Australia, uh, the likelihood of warmer weather and uh, less rainfall is going to have a big impact on many parts of, of Australia. So we have to have good canopy cover. And by good canopy cover, um, what I mean is that we should be aspiring to a 30% canopy cover in urban areas. And urban areas, many people who are listening to this podcast will go, oh, urban areas mean cities. No, that's not what urban areas means. Urban areas means where you've urbanised. Mm. And it could be a small country town, it could be a large country town, it could be a regional centre, or it could be a city. And the reason we've got to have 30% canopy cover in those places is to offer some mitigation to climate change and a canopy cover of about 30%, probably cool that area by somewhere around three or four degrees, which doesn't entirely solve the problems of climate change, but it, it offsets some of them. Mm. But we can't just do it with street trees. There is not enough street and you can't get enough trees on them. So if you're going to get 30% cover, you have to have trees both on public land, parks, roads and the like, and you've got to have trees on private land. And the, the interesting thing is that in most parts of Australia, we're actually losing urban canopy cover. Mm. Cities, it's well known. So for example, um, the South Australian Parliament has just had an, uh, uh, announced an inquiry into the fact that they've lost 11% of the canopy cover of Adelaide in a decade they're clearing 70,000 trees a year and they say it can't go on. Um, but you might, you might be surprised to learn and, and the, the listeners might be surprised to learn that in many smaller country towns, the clearing rates are exactly the same or worse mm. and any new housing in those country towns, small blocks, big houses, no trees. Yeah, you drive through Bairnsdale, for example, there's new builds, new building estates going up every time I drive through That's and right. they're the same as block sizes in the suburbs of surrounding surrounding Melbourne. Yeah, and or in any Australian city. They could, yeah. have, they could have just imported those suburbs and plonked them down. They could have. Now, the, the problem here is that the issue will be how many trees you can plant. Now, state planning laws in all states basically mean that you don't have to plant any trees on a, a private block. We recommend that there's enough space in the backyard for at least one or two medium-sized trees, which are trees of around 8 to 10 metres. So these are not 50-metre-tall mountain ash or um, mm. blue gums, and there are plenty of eucalypts that you could use. Eucalypts are not the only natives 
that no, you could use, but absolutely. they are amongst them. Yeah. And we also think that you should have enough space in the front of your uh, property for, again, one or two. So what we'd like to see is where uh, the planning laws of the state more or less mandate that you have a medium-sized tree, three medium-sized trees on your block. You could have two at the back and one at the front or two in the front, one at the back. Yeah. That's the variability allowed. And what that will do is it will cool the suburb. Now, if you put them in the right place, and by that I mean if you plant a couple of medium-sized trees to the north or the northwest of your property and you've got air conditioning, you'll save somewhere around $300 oh, a year. Yeah, absolutely. What I hear people whinge about, for lack of a better word, with some of, well, particularly with eucalypts, but with some of the Australian trees, is that they, instead of just dropping their leaves at one time of the year like a deciduous tree, they drop their leaves and then they peel bark all throughout the year. Are there some selections and is there research that is going into eucalypts that are a little bit well, cleaner? No, there's not because eucalypts are shedding. All trees shed, as you well know, yeah. but they shed because of their evolutionary history. You know, poor soils, the fact that they shed means that the, the litter from the tree itself uh, sort of reinvigorates the soil. It's part of the cycle, the nutrient mm. cycle. So we don't know enough about that, and I'm not aware of any research that's going into looking at um, how you can sort of reduce some of this shedding. But what I can tell you is that we know, for example, that many eucalypts will shed much more of their foliage in dry seasons. So if you were to, to keep the soil moisture up, you would certainly reduce the litter de deposition. And some of your uh, listeners, some of the, the folks that are listening to this podcast. The subversive gardeners. Yeah, yeah, great, great people. <laughs> they'll be thinking to themselves, oh, I haven't had a problem with shedding of my eucalypt for the last three years. Three yeah, La Nina years. Yeah. Lots of moisture. Yeah. And if you looked at the many eucalypt species that have been un under these conditions, their canopies have been fabulous. Yeah. I mean, lots of leaves, brilliant green, almost complete shade. And beautiful shade, yeah. Beautiful shade. And then now, uh, in the last sort of two months, we've started to dry off in many places <laughs> yeah. and the trees have gone, oh, we might have over-invested in a few of these leaves. We're going to drop some. Yeah. And there's lots of them. So my view on shedding is that you've got to look at this in the big picture. You get lots of benefits. You do have to clean up after them a bit. With the shedding of bark, usually, particularly in the smooth bark eucalypts, they only shed for about 14 to 21 days. Now, people exaggerate it. They think they're shedding all the time. Yeah. You know? But in fact, those smooth bark gums will start shedding usually sometime just before Christmas and they'll have shed almost completely by the time the new year comes. So that's not really the issue. Flowers, fruits, and leaves can be, and all I'm saying there is you can do something about the leaves if you keep the moisture up. I think garden design comes into it here too. So I've just moved into a house just before Christmas, and there's two beautiful Carimbia citriodoras next door, one in the front, one in the back. I've been brooming up a lot of bits and pieces of shedded bark I'm. A, I don't. I like naturalistic gardens. I'm. A, sure. I'm a messy gardener. Yep. But the only reason I've been bringing it up is because I've got horrendous black mulch on and a black driveway, so it looks really messy yes. on those two things. If you had yuki mulch or arborist mulch, you you wouldn't have to be raking it off. And if you had a driveway that wasn't so precious or in such a dark colour, you almost wouldn't see it. So it, it then becomes not so much of an issue. That's, that's right. I mean, the, the, my advice to 
uh, home gardeners, and I'm no garden designer, so I'm not pretending to be, <laughs> but I do know that if you've got big garden beds that are well mulched, mm. it makes life a lot easier. And, and that would help with the water retention, moisture All too. of those things. So yeah. when I designed my own garden back in the late 70s, and I still have it now, I designed it with big beds. Uh, I mulched them using the mulch that came from the plants. Yep. Uh, and I've never, I haven't had to buy mulch in the last 40-odd years. Um, there's, there's more than enough that the yeah. plants generate themselves. I have too many trees on, <laughs> on, on a small garden. I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that the listener's not surprised at that. Uh, and my... Carimbia citrodora is in a big bed and I never bother about the bark because yeah. it falls and becomes part of the mulch. I don't bother about the leaves because they're not there for very long because yeah. I have mulch that's about 75 millimetres thick, which 75 millimetres to 100 is the, mm. the, the almost the ideal thickness for mulch. And it breaks down really quite quickly. I do sweep the paths from time to time because some of the fruits can be a bit Slippery, you know, you yeah, can you can, can roll it like ball bearings. Uh, and what I find is that if I give that path a, a sweep maybe once a fortnight for three months when they're shedding, it's not very often. It's not often. And I've got this magnificent tree, the scent of which would be worth hundreds of dollars if you were paying for it. You know, yeah. you come in on a, on a hot day with a bit of moisture in the air and you can smell that lemon. Yes. It's gorgeous. A couple of uh, sweeps here and there is nothing. Yeah, nothing. And deciduous trees also make a mess, different time of year, but there's still a lot of maintenance involved if you've got a deciduous tree oh, absolutely. in the garden as well. Yeah, people forget. You know, I've actually had people say to me, oh, I'm going to plant evergreens before they because they don't drop leaves. And I say, but they do. Yeah. They drop them periodically, often right through the year. Oh, I thought they stayed green all the time. It's amazing that <laughs> it that is. attitude is out there. Yeah, it is. It is. Let's swing back to street trees for a moment. Something that councils and government, I know in conjunction with the Botanic Gardens, have been looking at in the last few years is the monetary or financial value yes. of trees. My, and I don't know whether this is accurate, but my assumption for them doing that is so that us as horticulturalists and the botanists can put a number on a tree so that councils and other people that maybe don't appreciate the tree in itself can go, oh, well, it's worth that much. Yes. We better keep it. Look, in, in, a, in a capitalistic society, mm. which we're in, money is the currency of decisions. So if you think about it, people make decisions based on the dollar. And if you don't value your trees in a similar way, then they don't, they don't get considered. Mm. And I can tell you back in the uh, 70s and 80s, when people were doing major projects around various capital cities, the trees were given a zero value. Yeah. So you would remove a tree because you would save $400 in a footpath. Mm. So this is, this is a real world issue. So, so the idea of putting a monetary value on trees has been around for a long time. Mm. There are many different systems. But in Australia at the moment, it, it's really topical because Arboriculture Australia last year came out with a, a minimum industry standard yeah. that says, this is how you put a monetary value on a tree. And it gave you three different methods. Oh, okay. that's fantastic. It is fantastic. And, and very often, it doesn't matter which method you use, the mm. value comes out pretty much the same, which shows that there's, there's an integrity. Mm. Underpinning this is what they call shadow pricing. The economists, because you can't just go and buy a fifty-year-old oak that's so big. Yeah. So there's not a market. So the economists have a, a methodology called shadow pricing, where you come up with a way of valuing, 
when there's not a market or a ready market. And then what, what you can do is you come up with a price, it's a shadow price, and then when a plant does go on the market, you see how close the shadow price is to the one you've calculated. Yeah. And if the market price and the shadow price were the same, you'd be going, woohoo, <laughs> that is a really great valuing system. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening. Fantastic. So occasionally palms come up. People listening to this podcast might remember that they bought all those uh, ficus hilii for the <laughs> yeah. um, for the Sydney Olympics. Yeah. And we know what the price of those were. So to give your listeners an idea, there are accepted methods of putting value on trees. And let's say you've got a, a really lovely uh, elm tree, probably worth about 30000 could mm-hmm. be a bit more. Mm-hmm. An oak might be worth fifty to 100000 depending on its size. A gum tree, a really good, you know, lovely form, good canopy, good nick, you might be talking again $30,000. I know of a uh, Morton Bay fig, massive, massive Morton oh. Bay fig, over $100,000. Easy. So what this then allows you to do is it allows your councils to say, well, we've got this avenue of trees. Each of the trees is worth, let's say, 25000 and we've got $2,000 of road damage from root systems. Ah, we'll fix the road. We'll leave the trees alone. Yeah. They'll get their priorities right. What are some of the components that go into these assessment so, systems? So, so the way it works is you, you look at the system and you, you work out how big the tree is, where its uh, location is, how old it is, how much uh, useful life it's got in front of it, how good is its form and structure. So you look at a whole range of different characteristics associated it, with the plant. Is the carbon capture by and part large, of it? It is part of it. It's assumed to be in there, but it's not a separate component. And what most of us expect will happen over the next sort of decade or two is as people recognise the value of trees, the, the real economic value of trees, then the price, the value will go up yeah. and up and up. Yeah. So, for example, we know that in a green and leafy suburb, the health costs are much lower than in a suburb without trees. Really? So you could you could easily work out, well, here, this region is paying on average, let's say, $10,000 less per person for health costs. So you could then associate that to each of the trees and you could actually mm-hmm. add it. Uh, when there was a carbon price, and we had one under the Rudd-Gillard government, remember, $23 a tonne, you could work out, well, that tree contains so much carbon and you could work out what it was. Uh, You could work out when a power distribution company went and pruned all the trees in your street, say for 100 trees, they'd pruned off a third of it, that was worth about $4,500 worth of carbon. And if they were doing that every three years, very quickly, they'd be putting those services underground. Mm. It would change the economic algorithms that apply to those Mm. suburbs. You've recently uh, released a study on the pricing of trees in over the course of their lifetime. Can, I did. You, can you tell me a bit about that study? Yes, that that's a, a good one. I didn't know that was coming up, Chloe. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. <laughs> We're yeah. going to talk about another one yeah, later. Yeah. So, so what, what, what we found was, the folks listening to this won't be surprised, what we found is that trees are really cheap. You don't spend very much on them each year. Mm. And the longer they live, the cheaper they become. So if you plant trees... But you, it might seem simple, but you, unfortunately it takes you, what, years of research 
and all that writing to come up with that to make people go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. well, they're a good thing. Sorry, keep yeah, going. That, that's exa- <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, very often um, good science is about common sense. Yeah. And so I would have thought everyone listening to this podcast would be thinking, well, it's obvious if a tree lives longer, you're going to get better, better value. But if you can say to someone, if, if you have your tree for 50 years, it's going to cost you yeah, about $100 a year mm. or $126, something like that. But if you go to 150, you're now down to about $80 a year. And if you go to, a, to 150, and if you got out 200, it's, it's about half. Mm. So what you find is that then there's an imperative for people who are managing assets, local government, state government, and these are people who are used to managing assets. If you say to them, the longer you keep that asset going, the cheaper it will be, there's an imperative for them to say, right, let's invest in a situation, the environment that allows them to reach their full lifespan. And that, that's, that's one of the reasons I wrote that paper. Mm. The usual deal with trees, and this doesn't matter where you are in the world, if you spend a dollar on them, you get somewhere between 6 and $12 back. Sometimes it will be much more. Mm. Occasionally it's less. And the occasions when it's less is because the trees are in very built up areas, such as in a city where there are big buildings. And if you want to do something to the tree, it costs you a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, traffic control, concrete everywhere. Mm. But elsewhere, uh, it can be around, as I said, somewhere between six and 12. Now, in fact, TreeNet, which is the group based in South Australia, they were involved with the University of South Australia uh, economists on this. And when they did a preliminary study in 2002, the value of an Adelaide street tree to the people of South Australia was $171. So that tree turned returned $171 of value to the people of Adelaide. And your listeners may be wondering, what did it cost? And the answer is roughly $10. Yeah, to, so to cost to buy. No, no, just, look to, after. just to keep it. Yeah, right. About oh, $10. Right. So that that's almost unbelievable, but 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 it gets better. You know, okay. it's not quite steak knives, but it's going pretty close. Um, a, a few years later, seven years later, a doctoral student with access to greater data and more accurate data worked out that the real value was about four hundred and thirty dollars, and the cost was about ten dollars. Costs remain the same. It's pretty much the same. Yeah. yeah, might have gone up a dollar. Depends which suburb you're in, as yeah. I mentioned, but on average, and very often what you'll find. Yeah, and, and this is curious, uh, and I do mention it in, in that particular research that you mentioned. Uh, very often, if you've got, say, 50,000 trees, you'll have a budget of about half a million to look after them, $10 a tree. If you've got 100,000 trees, you'll have about a million dollars, $10 to look after <laughs> them. Yeah, okay. So quite often what's obviously happened is there's been a bit of a tradition of $10 a tree. Yeah. We'll probably up that. Already. We should up that, yes. <laughs> and as I say, in some, to be fair, in some places, yeah. in, in the central parts of cities and mm. in some of the smaller towns where, you know, that they don't quite have the um, sense of scale, it could be that those equations change a bit. What a lot of people probably don't know about street trees is, or think about, is the selection process that goes into picking yes. the street trees. I have seen a form for picking the street trees. I think it might have been for Marooned Council a it's, long time it's ago. It's enormously difficult. Isn't it huge? Tell me about the process. Have you been involved with oh, it before? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, look, what, what people want is they want the impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's ex- essentially what they want. And Australians, um, if, if 
uh, AFL or cricket or rugby league are not your favourite sport, then bagging local council probably is. <laughs> they love to have a shot at local yes. council. But local councils have a terribly difficult position. So what yeah. do people want fr- from a tree? They want something that's beautiful. They want something that's tall. They want something that doesn't shed. They want it never to sort of cost any money. Yeah. Um, basically what they want is a painted post. Yeah. Uh, and so they're not used to – people want something that's not living. So councils are, uh, are placed in this terribly, terribly difficult position. So I'll just give you an example of what, what people want from a street tree. And, and some of these are almost contradictory. Mm. You want it to be fast growing initially, but then you don't want it to be fast oh, growing for too long. does that drive you nuts when people say that? Yeah, but that's what they want. <laughs> it is. They're being honest. They want it to have a great canopy cover and a spreading canopy, but not spreading too far and not shedding any leaves at all. So, th- so that's where they start. Then they, they want a straight trunk. They, they want a single trunk. They don't want branches too low. They don't want branches coming out for vehicles or for, for people walking by. They want low maintenance. They prefer it to have flowers that you can see, not little ones. They'd like it to attract birds and to, to do the right thing by the, the bees and the insects. They want it to live a long time. Yeah. And so you can see when you start putting – and, of course, it's got to be – it's got to live mm. and it's got to live without any care. Yeah. No maintenance. You've probably just listed about 30 criteria. I did. And that's just off the top of your head. Just, and then just, there's whatever else that's on these lists. It's, just rattle through it. It's almost impossible to find, or is it impossible? It, it is, yeah. yeah. So so you're not going to get a single specimen. And if you did, that would be calamitous because everyone would plant that tree. All over the world. All over the world. Yeah. And so you don't want to go along that path, particularly under climate change. So all I can say to you is for most of the larger councils where they have horticultural and arboricultural expertise, there is a considerable level of expertise that goes into picking trees. And by and large, they get it right. Yeah. By and large, they get it right. Every so often, they get it wrong and everyone jacks up. Yeah. On the one occasion yes. yeah, that someone gets it wrong. There's three common street pr- street trees that are planted in, say, southeastern Australia around Melbourne yep. that you did a study on recently, but you were looking at the sap flow. Yes. So what we were looking at is there's this sort of view that if you've got large trees and you've got lots of them, they'll suck out all the water from your soil and they'll basically destroy your house. Mm. <laughs> and so one of the aspects of that work was to see, well, if you have one tree does it use more water than if you have three? And the answer is not necessarily. Mm. So the trees sort of react to the root systems and the subterranean environment around them. And very often what you'll find is if you've got some good urban trees, then they'll keep the moisture levels in your soils pretty even. And if you can keep the moisture level in your soil, particularly if it's a reactive clay, from changing too much, then you're much less likely to get cracking. So the idea that trees always make things worse, it's simply not true. It depends a little bit on the soil type and it does depend on uh, annual rainfall and the like. Mm. But the, the, the good thing about this is that we're starting to look at root systems in much greater detail. And so, for example, permeable paving is now much more popular. And Permeable paving allows moisture to penetrate through. It collects moisture at, at the site of the fall. Uh, it's very good for preventing a local flooding. Now, if you think about a combination of permeable paving and, and those common street trees, that's likely to work really, really well. And if you did need some supplementary watering over summer 
And some of the uh, listeners might be going, oh, we don't have water to waste over summer, recycled water. Mm. If you add it to the soil then, you keep things pretty much stable. Those trees keep using the water, but that cools your atmosphere. So what you find is in very hot weather, if you can allow your trees to get some water in the morning, they will cool firstly by shade. So everyone says, oh, yes, we know that trees are shady and that cools. But people often forget that trees, if there's water available, are pushing that water out through their foliage where it evaporates. And that evapotranspiration, as we call it, cools the air around it, around it like a cool guardy safe, mm. okay, or like a wet towel in front of yeah. a fan. And then you've got a combination of two factors, the shade and this cooling. And that can cool a city during a heat wave to the extent that it would save lives. That's how important this is. So your street trees and and the people listening to this podcast might be thinking, but they're just ornamental. They're just there because they make things look pretty. No, they're not. Mm. They're there because they do things and some of the things that they do will make a difference to the quality of the lives of people living there, but in some instances it will make a, a, a difference to life and death for certain individuals. So this is not just about decoration. This is about how important it is to have trees in particular, green space in general, in your cities for the health and well-being of your citizens. And we know for absolute fact, there's a huge amount of data on this, the greener your suburbs, the longer you live. Mm. The greener your suburbs, the more sustainable that suburb is. The greener your suburbs, uh, the higher the birth weights of the babies that come from the women. The less money you spend on pharmaceutical drugs, the less time you spend on hospitals, the longer you live. How This is really important stuff. I think you just need to get used to a tree with an odd shape or an odd branch or some bark being a little bit messy for all of those benefits that you just mentioned because that is insane. Absolutely. But let's come back to eucalypts for a second. Sure. So... Eucalypts might look a bit untidy. Well, why don't you tidy them up? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, of, of all of the species that you can think of, eucalypts probably respond as well as any, if not better than all, to careful, smart pruning. So one of the things that we would recommend is when you plant a young gum tree, whether it's in a street or in uh, your garden, when you plant a young eucalypt, formatively prune it. Now, formatively pruning means that you get in young while the tree is young, not while you're young, and or maybe both, um, and you take a pair of secateurs and you just make sure that that tree is going to have a good, safe, sound structural form. Very easy when it's young, very cheap to do when it's young, very expensive when it's mature. It's the same with almost any plant. Is pruning it correctly from a young age, whether it's a tree or a hedge or any sort of shrub so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. And it saves you so much time and money and effort later yeah. on. But as I say, eucalypts respond very well and they respond very well because of their natural adaptations. So for example, epicormic buds, these are dormant, they're under the bark, you don't even know they're there. Mm. And then when the tree gets uh, stressed, bushfire, all those little buds come out, turn them into teeth, toothbrush trees. Or when the tree is grazed uh, by insects, they produce all the new shoots and foliage. Foliage, Epicormic buds are an absolutely fantastic adaptation mm. to a difficult environment. And most of our eucalypts, nearly all of them have it. Lignotuberous buds in the, in the what, what uh, people might know as mallee roots, 
down below in the soil, mm. another set of adaptations. Now, how often do you hear those talked about in gardening circles or being used by arborists or home gardeners? They are wonderful assets. So if I happen to prune a branch off one of my eucalypts, first thing I do is I try and prune back to a, another branch mm. or to a bud. If I don't know where the buds are, I'll prune back. One of them will emerge. Two of them will emerge. Three, 23 of them will emerge, <laughs> you know, because they've got lots of these epicormics. Yeah. I can pick one. Where do I want my branch to go? Do I want it to go that way or upwards or downwards or that way? Mm. This is what eucalypts afford us. They afford us a wonderful flexibility. And if I was to be thinking about eucalypts in general, I would be thinking eucalypts are our friends. They are fantastically flexible. You can have all of that, the variety in your selection, but even then when you've made your selection, they have all these adaptations that allow you to be flexible in how you manage it. Going back to epicormic growth for a second, I this is more of a personal for my own benefit question. Maybe other other listeners are thinking about it too. I have heard over the years that in relation to eucalypts, epicormic growth can there can be issues with structural stability. Absolutely. So when, when epicormic buds develop uh, into shoots, they can be weakly attached to start with, mm. and they can develop and grow very quickly and become very long. And so they are prone to be shedding. Now, this leads to a sort of, uh, uh, again, it's one of these urban myths. Oh, epicormic buds are dangerous. Yeah. No, they're not. Epicormic buds are absolutely fantastic structures. They occur in many other genera and species, and they are wonderful adaptations to stress. But, but if you get epicormics coming out under certain circumstances, you have to manage them. Yeah. And by and large, it's pretty simple. It's very simple arboriculture for a good arborist. You come back, if the um, epicormic shoot is small and high up in the canopy, you let it go. It's not going to do any damage if a little bud, uh, a little shoot falls off. And of course, it allows a damaged canopy to renew itself literally in weeks. It's it's a brilliantly quick adaptation. Mm. But of course, if it gets very long, then you might think, well, that's, there's a danger that it mightn't have attached properly and you prune it back. And you might prune it back a third or even a half to a, a, one of those little branches. You let it go. And if it starts to grow too long, you prune it back. And if you keep doing that, you'll eventually turn that epicormic shoot into a branch. And epicormic shoots and branches have different anatomy. Right. So by pruning it back, you are, you're strengthening the, the attachment. The attachment. Because do you refer to the codet oh, yes. theory? Okay, so, well, that's good too. With the way that plant tissue or tree fibres are connected, yes. so you by pruning it back, you are building up those fibres? So, so what happens is, uh, f- for the benefit of the listeners, the, the codet is a model of branch attachment or, or, or of, of compartmentalisation, the way trees sort of work. It's a, it's a model, and, and, you, and the listeners don't need to know the term. But uh, what happens is that, uh, with a branch each year, the branch produces new fibres and the trunk produces fibres that grow over them, and that gives the branch union strength. When you've got an epicormic, the epicormic grows very fast and the trunk doesn't have time to p- produce new fibres over it. So what you want to do is you want to slow the growth mm. of the branch and you want the trunk each year to produce new trunk fibres as it grows over, and that will turn an epicormic shoot into a typical branch, and the branch should have the same strength as a normal one after four or five years, if you do it properly. If you do it properly. 
Thank yep. you for answering me those questions. <laughs> My pleasure. Let's jump onto tree health for a second. So from a gardening perspective, what can people do to look after their trees, eucalypts or otherwise? Okay, this is a really simple one, and this goes back to old-fashioned horticulture. When I first start, started being involved with horticulture, there was an expression that said, healthy trees don't get sick, healthy plants don't get sick. And it sounds odd, doesn't it? Mm. If they're healthy, why would they get sick? But what it actually means is prevention is better than cure. So if you can provide uh, an environment for your tree where it's not stressed, the odds are it'll look after itself. And the simplest way of doing this for most, in fact, all trees, let's let's keep this really simple, Mm. grow your trees in mulch, mixed particle size, organic mulch between 75 and 100 millimetres thick. That's to start with it. Next thing, think about where you're going to plant your trees. The less you interfere with its roots and the less you interfere with its canopy, the healthier and the longer lived that tree will be. If you can keep the water up to the tree in the first couple of years, particularly over summer, that will give it a real advantage. And if you can treat some of the leaf-eating insects, leaf miners and the like, off the tree in the first sort of five to ten years, that will make a big difference. And then after that, just keep the mulch going. And if you've got the capacity to give the tree a couple of irrigations in a very hot summer, maybe three or four over a very hot summer, that will also facilitate good, healthy growth. And what I mean by that is you've got your mulch down, put your leaky pipe or your drippers under the mulch. Mm. That's the best way of using the moisture. And if you're going to uh, provide a tree with some moisture, do so early in the morning. Easy. (laughs) Not easy, but certainly understandable and followable. What about tree selection then? So right plant, right place would be another component to having a healthy tree that lasts a long time. We're in Melbourne. There's probably people, I hope there's people listening from um, all different parts of Australia. It's a bit of a tough question and it's a bit of a what's your favourite tree question, but what what are some really good trees that are suited to planting in in a standard urban backyard, okay. and that ve- that size also varies a lot these yes. days too. It's true. So I've mentioned a couple. Um, I, I don't see why you wouldn't be considering a yellow gum. Get a good yellow gum, do a great job, and the flowers. Yeah. Fantastic there's, flowers. There's a couple of really good yellow gums that you can get at nurseries, and the megalocarpa yeah. subspecies yes. is a popular one, but yuki dwarf yes. also falls into that group. Different subspecies, I think. Yeah, diff- different group, but yeah, that, they, they'll work well. So don't, don't don't rule out eucalypts. Why wouldn't you look at some of the lily pilly? Yeah. Some really good lily pillies around, and these are just natives that you could use. Uh, there's, there's certain acacias that you could use. So, for example, I know that a lot of people won't grow acacias because they think they're short-lived, but black wattle is, is short-lived. Black wattle, uh, acacia mernsii, will live for about 20 to 25 years. Mm. I grew a lot of those in the early days of my gardening because – they grew very fast. They provided me with fantastic mulch and they were great nurse trees. So you could plant other slower growing trees amongst them mm. and that would sort of, they, they, they'd look after them, yeah. so, so to speak. Silver wattle is a, a, a good tree and really quite resilient in many parts. And, and there are other equivalent wattles that people might grow. So don't grow one of the wattles I'm suggesting that might come from Victoria or, you know, New South Wales. Grow one that, that's of similar stature and form that's local. And of course, you've got blackwoods and lightwoods that also do very well. So there's three that you could use. People may be wondering about deciduous trees. Melia azadarac, the white cedar, 
native, very good tree, and some of the uh, folks listening to this podcast will will remember or, or perhaps go, no, I'm not planting one of those because they have fruits like ball bearings. Yeah. But now you can get v- virtually fruitless varieties. They're, they're easily available from your nursery and they have all of the great things that you want from those, you know, the nice foliage, the great scent, the flowers, don't have the fruits. Right. So they're a really good one. If you were looking at an exotic tree, I would suggest that some of the listeners have a think about some of the oaks and not the sort of the English oak, the sort of traditional ones. But if you're if you're living in regional southeastern Australia, have a look at say some of the Asian or the American oaks, the Californian type oaks, and they're oh, pretty tough. They would be so tough for a dry environment. Yes, California's even drier than than parts of southeastern Australia. Yes. Yeah. So so they can grow really really well. So I what I what I think is that there is a very broad palette of genera and species available to us. I think we'll grow more and different species in the future because of climate change. And I'm pretty confident that we will start to look at eucalypts as the great assets they are. And we'll be looking at different ones from our various states and thinking that could grow really, really well. And one of the good things about eucalypts is they're not all great in terms of uh, water use. So you've got to sort of know a little bit about what the eucalypts do. But as we said right at the beginning of this podcast, eucalypts are so variable, and I said flexible. <laughs> and so you've got some that are what we call profligate water users. They just they just use water like it's going out of fashion. Yeah. And when the water sort of is turned off, they'll die. But there are others that are amazingly tough. They will keep on sort of keeping on. They'll still be ready to photosynthesize even as the soil dries out. And then if you get a little bit of rain, they're ready to go and they'll start going immediately. I'm putting you on the spot, but off the top of your head, what are some of those ones? Most of those ones you'll find go north of the divide or to the inland of Australia, and there's a whole range of them that have that characteristic. These are species that basically keep their stomata open, which are the little pores that allow water and and gaseous exchange, and they then have this capacity to cope with very low internal water, what we call osmotic pressure or water, water potential inside, and but they have the added advantages as soon as it starts to moisten the soil, mm-hmm. they start going back into growth. Are many of them available on no, the market? No, no, almost none of them. You'd have to go to the local Indigenous nurseries yeah, okay. uh, in, in those regions to find them, yeah. and you'll find that many of the nursery people in those local Indigenous nurseries know what they've got, and you'll also find that in some cases uh, there won't be a local Indigenous nursery, but there might be a, a Society for Growing Australian Plants, and you go and have a chat to them. Yeah. Greg, we've covered a lot of ground today. I want to thank you very much for your time. I hope and I think people will have learned a lot about the eucalyptus genus, but have a greater appreciation of urban street trees, what they go through and the selection process for it. it. It's my pleasure, Chloe. I've been very happy to talk to you about them. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast is brought to you by the Diggers Foundation. In order to bring these discussions into the open, we require ongoing funding and ask that you visit the Diggers website for more information on our purpose and how to make a donation towards preserving garden traditions, 
educating Australian gardeners and making a better world through gardening. Visit www.diggers.com.au.